Hello and welcome to the Faculty Podcast. Covering the latest breakthroughs, research news and insight, delivered by the world's leading academic and industry figures. In this episode, Mona Gleason discusses the efforts of rural families to secure an education for the children in the period between the First and Second World Wars. My study takes place uh, in a very kind of particular time uh, in the history of British Columbia, which is Canada's most western province. Um, so my, my research looks at um, the period in between the, t- the two world wars, actually. And I think what's really important for, for listeners and readers to understand about this particular work is that uh, in, you know, in 1931, 19, the 1920s, um, British Columbia was uh, extremely um, sparsely populated. It's a huge province. It's like 365 square thousand square miles, but it only had about seven uh, 700,000 people. So um, it's a big place, um, but very few people. So uh, the province is um, predicated on resource resource extraction. So you know our history is one of forestry and mining, uh, and this was particularly pronounced during during this period. So we have lots of people, workers, um, with families who are sort of stationed in far-flung places all over the province. The city of Victoria and Vancouver, of course, kind of a different story. Those urban centers were far more um, concentrated in terms of population. But in those rural areas, you know, we had families literally scattered. And I'm talking about white settler families. The indigenous piece is, is kind of a, a very special separate piece. Um, So, you know, we have families, far-flung areas, uh, they need schooling. And at that particular time, there just wasn't brick-and-mortar schools all over the province, as you can imagine. They only really existed in densely populated areas. The government had been, through the, the Department of Education at that time, had been offering um, correspondence schooling, and this was sort of something that I discovered that I thought was quite interesting, had been offering correspondence schooling to coal miners, to adult, typically adult men, coal miners, to sort of get them a little bit more training. So they had this model in place. They wanted to attract more more people, so they um, they offered uh, an elementary correspondence school. They uh, so this was run through the Department of Education. It was centered in Victoria, which is the capital, uh, and so it was a very interesting kind of kind of time when families in remote locations could literally just send a, a letter to the Department of Education in Victoria asking to be for their children to be enrolled in this um, element, elementary correspondence school. So that's where the, that's kind of a very broad context of the study itself. Um, within within a time period of you know pretty intense change going on um, from World War One to World War Two, the province is in this kind of um, eminent stage of uh, growing, uh, but still not quite big enough to make brick and mortar schooling something that every family had access to. One of the things that that I found intriguing when I was searching, just kind of you know as historians do, just kind of loitering around in the archives. Um, the the this elementary correspondence school, of course, has a nice uh, um, file uh, in the in our, in the archives in Victoria, 
I was sort of going through the, the description of what was in that archive. I was intrigued. And one of the files that really caught my imagination um, was a group of, well, more than a group. It was a huge amount of course letters, correspondence, going back and forth between um, the parents of these uh, students enrolled in this correspondence school and um, the the teachers and administrators in the school itself. Now, some of those, m- most of those letters came from, in fact, from from mothers. There were some fathers as well, for sure, and some also came from the the children themselves. And the oldest, of course, I mean, some of the correspondence between children and and teachers in the school went on for many years. So it's a very interesting collection. That collection had not been looked at um, by Canadian historians um, very significantly. There was, there's one very good um, uh, master's level thesis that, that did look at the, the correspondence school a little more broadly, but no one had really done anything with those letters. And I found that so, I found them just so compelling when I started reading them. Um, you know, all sorts of, of interesting stories around what education meant for these families, what the conditions were under which they were trying to get their kids educated, um, you know, how people thought about their own, um, their own place within the province, their own role as citizens. The children themselves would, would tell tales of, you know, what their days were like out, you know, in, in these, these areas what contributions they made to their families, and why their interactions with the school um, was really important to them. Uh, so I was, I was really uh, intrigued by these letters. As a historian who, you know, I do work in the sort of the um, spaces uh, between, you know, a straight sort of history of education and history of childhood. So this was a this these were these were a, a really I thought rich source of data that helped me bring those two kind of stories a story of getting an education and, and being a kid and growing up kind of together. So I I just I continue to um, go back to those letters because there's just they're so rich there's so many stories uh, there. One of the broader themes that emerged from from my analysis of these letters. Uh, was far beyond just, you know, um, uh, parents kind of asking for books or asking for supplies or looking for tips on how to get their children to focus on the lessons. Uh, one, uh, a theme that really emerged was this notion of parents' really clear kind of understanding as they articulated it in the letters that they were con- making major contributions to the province. So when they ran into to problems around, you know, oh, I, I, the lessons aren't, I'm not receiving them, the mail system's too slow, I need your assistance, I need more books, please send me paper. I mean, these are all requests uh, that were made. But often in the context of, you know, we are, um, we are the front line for this province in terms of bringing prosperity to the coffers, not only of the government, but to, to everyone. I mean, we, we are, you know, parents would articulate, we've made it a sacrifice here. We've gone, you know, husbands would go out, typically it would be husbands going out to, as I said, mine or, or work on forestry or often work on the um, railroad. Uh, and these families would follow them. And so there was a sense in which parents on one hand, you know, we're sort of uh, clear in um, articulating their 
what they believed was their right to a very good education for their kids. And on the other hand, there was this sort of anxiety uh, that was articulated around, um, you know, have we done the right thing by by often? They were often um, folks who had either immigrated to Canada or had come from other parts of the country. You know, have we done the right thing in moving to this very remote place, remote for, for, the, for white settlers? It wasn't remote for indigenous people. But are, have we done the right thing, taking our kids to these far-flung places, where we're having difficulties getting getting the most basic, and, and not only the most basic, but one of the most important kind of things that, that a child needs, which is a very structured education. So so I found that interesting that parents would really, you know, utilize this argument of their need, indeed their rights, for their kids to have access to a really high-quality, equitable, um, you know, equitable with urban children uh, education. So um, it, it, the, the letters are very dynamic. And that was one of the sort of the bigger themes that I think uh, I pulled out of those letters um, just because it was repeated so many times. One of the items that um, is kind of uh, a silence rather than um, really strongly there in this particular file or this particular group of letters and it's a very contemporary topic here in, in British Columbia as well, is the relationship between white settler families and, um, you know, advances in the province in terms of, of infrastructure, education, all of these things, is a real sort of, I can see through this project, the beginnings of a sort of a, well, perhaps not the beginnings of, but a rearticulation of the absence of Indigenous students from these letters. I have no evidence in this letters that Indigenous students were actively seeking out and receiving uh, you know, correspondence schooling. So that was something that was kind of interesting. As, as historians in Canada were, were sort of, you know, trained to really look for, so what was, you know, what's happening in terms of uh, Indigenous people. So that, that was interesting to me. Um, and it says something about our ongoing um, challenges around ensuring that, that Indigenous people are have equitable access to education in the province. Another another uh, important implication is that I, that the work really challenges assumptions that all Canadian children were happily in schools by the 20th century, um, even well into the 20th century. This kind, the kind of research that I've I've done really shows that that's mistaken. That children did not all have access to brick and mortar schools, to professionally trained teachers, well into the 40s and 50s. So that to me was um, very interesting, kind of concerning, and and but also would would want uh, would you know I would want fellow historians in the in you know certainly in Canada but also internationally to not sort of put Canada on a pedestal in terms of, oh, they've compulsory schooling, widespread access to schooling, well entrenched by the early 20th century. Just That's just not the case. The other thing I think that emerges from the project is, um, you know, a pretty clear evidence that, um, you know, that, that in, in British Columbia, anyway, governments really have a history of prioritizing economic development um, really over equitable access to education, and I think that comes through very clearly in the project. The you know the 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 need to extract resources from the land was really the top priority at this point in the province. It was not 
um, you know, serving the needs of, of children and sort of basic educational access. Um, so, you know, and, and also I think another implication or important finding, despite the challenges, uh, that there's a really, that what comes clear for me through the, the sources is there's a really enduring sentiment, um, you know, on the parts of, of parents, as, of citizens in, in the province, that, that education is somehow the key to a better future for their kids. So that's a very, um, that comes through very clearly, not only as I mentioned earlier, and sort of, you know, um, clear statements of, look, I deserve, my kids deserve to have access to the resources that, that you have in terms of education. But also this anxiety around, you know, I'm really nervous, I haven't received the lessons, my child might be falling behind. So these are all sort of familiar familiar tensions um and they they have a long history uh and 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 it's it's intriguing to me that that citizens are, have been long well aware that one of the things that the state needs to provide and it needs to provide it in a fulsome way is access to quality education so that was interesting to me to see that you know, fairly major theme shine through in in small ways in in letters from a mom of three in 1932 or a mom of five in 19, you know, 21. So that was really, um, to me, that was, that was useful, uh, important and, uh, and really intriguing.